I was remembering uh, this week a time in my mid-twenties when I was a new Christian, and I was driving my beat-up old pickup truck up to my brother's house to, it didn't have a a radio among other things, so all I did was think as I was driving. Uh, I needed to fix something, and so I'm heading up to my brother's house and just various things going through my head, and one of them was, I wonder, as a new Christian, I wonder if we'll work on cars and trucks in heaven. I kind of like that. It's kind of fun. It's problem solving. I'm like, oh, we'll, we'll even have cars and trucks. What's it all going to be like? Are we just going to be like fat little precious moment angels with wings playing harps or something? Like, These are the things going through my head. Maybe you have different questions. Are we just going to sing for all eternity? What's it, what's it going to be like? And I didn't have answers. And I was a little worried about what I was getting myself into with this whole Christian thing. And so, maybe you've asked yourself similar questions <clears throat> about heaven or about something else, but you wind up wrestling with, what, you know, what am I giving up to be a part of this? Uh, you know, what, what's it all about? What am I missing out on? And, and is, it, is it worth it? Is it worth it? this Christian thing. Today we're going to look at another set of parables, two parables, twins again, and like last week, they're not identical, but they're very similar to each other. We're in Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, and in these parables, Jesus does not answer questions about eternity and about fat little cherub angels or whatever about heaven. There are other places in scriptures you can look to a different day for that. He doesn't answer those questions, but he, but he does answer the question about whether it's worth it. That if, if somehow we're missing out by giving up on anything. And Jesus' answer in these parables is essentially that the kingdom is worth more than anything else. And it's not going to be dull or boring, but in fact, it will bring you joy. That the kingdom is worth more than anything else, and it will bring you joy even now it can do that. What does that all mean? Well, let's look together at God's Word, Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46 of God's Holy Word. You read with me. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. We're going to end there. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Would you meet us here and give us a greater sense, or maybe for the first time, a sense 
and experience of the joy that you offer us as we find your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So like those two parables last week, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, back in Matthew 13, 31 to 33, we're looking at two parables again. And, and they're very similar, not identical, you know, they're, they're twins, but maybe they're fraternal. Um, and they each start, if you, if you look at them, they each start with this expression, the kingdom of heaven is like. And they go on to say, you know, a treasure or a man seeking fine pearls. And, and they both say the kingdom of heaven is like, and we might not have talked about this yet, but Matthew uses kingdom of heaven to mean the kingdom of God. And he was writing to what we believe was predominantly a Jewish audience that had some sensitivities to hearing the name of God named and were very reluctant. So he would rephrase things. And that was a common approach among the Jewish community in those days to, to use a different way of expressing things. So he says the kingdom of heaven, he means the kingdom of God, is like, and then in the middle, each, uh, each, par- each parable tells us of a person who finds something valuable. The one seems to stumble across it, not looking for it, finding a treasure in a field. The other has been searching for it as a pearl merchant, a businessman, and finds this one pearl of great value. And then in the end, they both sell out to get that thing that they found. And you you get the sense, there's not very many words, but the emphasis is clearly on the kingdom and the fact that it can be found, sometimes by accident, sometimes after long searching. And all who do find the kingdom consider it worthy, consider it worth more than anything else. The kingdom is worth more than anything else. They sell out to obtain it. And we need to be careful because that's not a statement about how you get into the kingdom. You can't buy your way in. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is this is about what you get out of the kingdom. That it's not how you get in, it's what you get out. In other words, if you fully commit to this kingdom, you will find it's worth more than anything else. I stumbled into the kingdom in my mid-twenties. I wasn't particularly looking for it. I can see times when God was drawing me. But at that point in my life, it was just kind of like, hey, what is, what is, what is this? Wow, this is amazing. I never understood these things before. I want this. Other people search for a long time, are seeking and reading and exploring, and, and they find and have a similar experience. Well, this, this is it. This is meeting those questions, those, meeting the longings I had. I've found it. These are the answers that make sense and scratch the itch deep in my soul. That this is worth it. And I'm going to stop looking in other places and I'm going to forego the other options and pursue this one. Even in the midst of, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out, 
You know, even in the midst of some questions remaining unanswered, when you find the kingdom, there remains this abiding sense that it's worth committing to. It's worth walking through some uncertainty. It's, it's worth persevering. And so that's the question I want us to look at. Well, what makes it worth those things? What makes the kingdom so valuable that Jesus says in these parables that it's worth giving up everything else to get the kingdom? And the main answer I want us to focus on from these two parables is that, is that it's, you get lasting joy. That the kingdom brings with it, when you fully commit to it, it brings lasting joy, not a burden. And we need to start there because Jesus is clearly saying it is good to find the kingdom. Verse 44, the first of the two parables, says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hid in the field which a man found and hid again and from joy over it. He goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. It is a good thing to find the kingdom. And it's a common theme in the world around us, and maybe even within us and the church community, those who grow up in it, to have the sense that, you know, it's actually kind of a burden. You know, this kingdom thing, it sounds like the way some people talk about it, it's about you have to do this. And you must do that. And there's this never-ending list of, of rules and duties. And along with all of that burden of obligations, some think comes a life of no fun. No smiles. Certainly no joy. You have to sit around reading the Bible all day. Or praying all day. Or you have to go to church or you have to give up all your money, or you have to spend a lot of time, or you have to forsake entertainment that you enjoy, or, or whatever it is. The kingdom very often sounds like a burden. And Jesus is saying the very opposite. It, it is good. And the reality is that from the outside, you're not going to experience that. And even from on the fence, you're not going to experience it. And we'll see this as we dig a little deeper, that you have to commit to fully experience those things. Because in fact, here's the thing. There are people in this room committed to the kingdom, and they actually really enjoy spending all day reading the Bible and would love to quit their jobs and just do that. Amen? Amen? No, we're made to work, too. But there are people in this room that pray most of the day. Throughout the day, they don't just sit on their knees, they're praying throughout the day. They're in a constant conversation with the Lord, and it's energizing, not a burden. There are people in this room that, that have gospel conversations with strangers and don't find it fearful, but rather love it. There are people in this room who have given of their time and their finances and their treasures including lots of water bottles, as somebody mentioned a moment ago, right? And it's not a burden. In fact, if you try to thank them, they'll be like, no, 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 no. That's part of the kingdom. And, and, and it's hard to understand from the outside. 
But it's even hard for us on the inside sometimes to understand that, right? Because we kind of think in one set of circumstances, right? We, we, we don't realize that we all kind of experience the kingdom a little differently. And that's okay. I'm not speaking of relativism here. It's not that. But we experience it because we're different people. We have different gifts. We have different callings. We have different interests and passions. We've got different ways that our family and the world and the time in which we've lived has shaped us. And so we experience that differently. And if we find those spots where we're in line with what God wants us to do, especially as he's formed us and shaped us and gifted us, we're, we're going to thrive. We're going to lose track of time, right? We're going to give extravagantly and not think anything of it, but be surprised when people thank us. That's, that's the sense of, of, of finding this kingdom and recognizing that it's worth more than anything else. That the similarity we have in, in the kingdom is that we have the sense of wholeness or rightness when we are resonating with what God is doing. And the trick for us as different people, especially us from different cultures and different ethnicities, different economic backgrounds, different educational, all of those kind of things in the midst of our differences, we need to be aware that what God wants is not monotony, where we're all singing the same song at the same pitch in the same meter, but God wants a harmony. And that we're going to express that in different ways. And that I can find joy singing a contemporary worship song, and maybe you find joy singing a traditional song, or maybe in your heart language from Togo, or in some other language. Or maybe you find a joy and studying the Word, and someone else, and praying. But that's how God has made us, right? That's how big the kingdom is. And if we are only on the outside looking in, it's very easy to misunderstand those things. So what Jesus is saying is, look, come into this kingdom. Experience it for yourself, and you will see it is worth more. He's got to say that, right? He's got to tell us it in different ways for us to recognize it, because it is a barrier for us. God is like this great conductor, you know, he's in front of an orchestra who's playing this elaborate piece of music that the conductor himself wrote, and he's, you know, calling us out to say, you know, you, you, you guys, a little louder, you know, serve a little in that way. You pray, you know, this is, God is, is conducting it, that we would be in this harmony, all of us doing our parts, playing our role, whatever it might be. And if we're doing that, we find this joy that's not only not a burden, but in fact expresses the well-being you were made for. That this joy is in essence the well-being you were made for. The kingdom of God brings joy that I'm going to call well-being. You see that in the hidden treasure parable, right? The, for joy, it says, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field, verse 44. And, you know, you might sometimes there's a little bit of a stumbling block here that, wait a minute, the guy found the treasure in somebody else's property and he hides it and then he goes and buys. Doesn't that, that feels a little shady, doesn't it? You know, that's probably what we think, especially, you know, Western private property and individuals and that kind of thing. It was really probably the better analogy for you to think about is this, this guy is, you know, snorkeling off the coast of Florida or something. You know, he's, 
He's, he's deep sea diving and he finds a sunken ship and there's treasure in it, right? That it's this sense of something that's been there a while. In those days, they didn't have a bank, you know. You didn't want to keep stuff in your house buried in the ground because the robbers would come in and they'd know you kept your valuable stuff. So you would bury it somewhere off. It was also a land that was ravaged by war over the centuries. And so people would plunder and, you know, they'd be like, I can't carry all this home. I'm going to bury it here and I'll put it under this tree. You know, and then they forget about it. Or the tree has another tree grow next to it and you can't find it. You know, that, that's the picture here. The picture is, and the point is, that this is something that he wants and finds this joy in discovering. The same for the pearl of great price, as it's often called. In verse 45, the kingdom is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Think of a wholesaler who's in the, in the pearl business, and he buys pearls cheaper here, and he tries to sell them more expensively over here. You know, he goes all around finding pearls, buying them at low cost, and takes them to where the people want to pay more for them. And he does that, and he finds this one pearl of great value, verse 46. And he says, I'm, this is worth everything. I'm going to sell all that I have and buy it. And, and you're like, oh, wait a minute. You know, well, if it's there in the market, is he going to go back home and sell it? That's not the point, okay? It's a parable. Don't, don't dig too much into all of the details. Dig into the necessary ones. That the point is that this thing that he has been searching for is available and he's found it and it's worth more than anything else. And he sells out to obtain it. There's a joy in that. It's a joy unlike what we saw back in the parable of the soils. It's not the joy of the seed sown on the rocky soil where it pops up and feels some momentary pleasure and joy. This is a long-lasting joy. And that's why I call it well-being because it has this sense of wholeness or rightness, a sense of peace and hope. Like, like finding your lost sheep that you've searched for and you bring it back to the flock. There's this joy that all of them are back together again in the place where they should be. Luke 15 talks about that, right? It's like finding that lost coin that you search all over for. And now, okay, it's safely back in your purse. And you're at peace. And everything feels right with the world. It's like the joy of a lost son who had gone away made poor choices and now comes home. That's Luke 15, those three parables there. That this is the joy. Every one of those parables mentions this joy. It's the joy that the wise men had as they followed the star from a faraway land and they get to Jerusalem and they meet with King Herod and they're inside and when they come back out, there's the star. And it points to the place where the one has been born now lives king of the Jews as a baby. And they find him and they give him the great gifts, the valuable gifts out of joyful hearts. That's the joy of living in the kingdom, of, of seeking first his kingdom. That's the joy. And we don't have time to to dig into the parable that's following this. I thought we would, but the one about the dragnet. But what you need to understand, at least about that parable and about what happened just before the two parables we're looking at, is that they both 
contrast here. These two parables we're looking at are about this joy, about this rightness of finding the kingdom. The parable just after with the dragnet talks about the horrible judgment to come if you don't find this joy. If you don't live in this kingdom, it speaks of a big catch of fish and they're sitting on the shore sorting through it. And it says in verse 49, it will be at the end of the age the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just before our two parables, Jesus has talked about the wheat and the weeds. Pastor Dave preached on this weeks ago. And it says in verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth His angels at the end of time and will gather out of His kingdom all the stumbling blocks and all those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father who has ears to hear. Let him hear. This horrible judgment is contrasted with this exceeding joy. That this joy you can have. And it's tied up with these choices. Are you going to line up with the life in the kingdom? So it's what you were made for, this well-being. And if you reject the purpose of God, if you reject God's plan for your life that, that will keep you well, you will have sorrow upon sorrow. It is the natural consequence of living outside of the design that God has that He would have us to live in His kingdom. Which means what? We've talked about this numerous times. That the kingdom is about not a place in particular, but about the rule, about the reign, R-E-I-G-N. The kingship of God. And if you are in the kingdom, that means you're submitting to Him as king. You recognize that His ways are best. They are the law and they are for your good. This life in the kingdom does have an aspect of obedience. We see that in the parable of the talents. We'll look at it more deeply in the future. But in Matthew 25, Jesus tells this parable about uh, giving resources to three people. And he gives this much to one and you know, this much to another and this much to another. And the first one uses those resources and gains more. The second one uses those resources and gains more. And Jesus says to both of them, you were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then he says to the one who took that little bit of resources and said, I was afraid and I hid your talent in the ground and I'm going to give it back to you. He says to that servant, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered and you didn't at least put it in the bank. You hid it. You buried it. Take it away from him. Give it to one of the others. Throw this one into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very hard passages that contrast what God would have for you, which is exceeding joy, hope, confidence, peace, well-being. Assurance. Joy. 
We don't have time to go there, but this is a theme in John 14 through 17. As Jesus speaks for the last time to the disciples there in the upper room on the night when he was betrayed, D.A. Carson, commenting on that, summarizes it well. He says, as Jesus' supreme joy is in the relationship of obedience to the Father, so the Christian's supreme joy lies in relationship of obedience to the Son. Every Christian, D.A. Carson says, who has traveled any distance on his pilgrimage knows this to be so. His deepest joy springs from periods in his life when he obeys Christ with unreserved commitment. When some difficult decision with complex moral overtones thrusts itself upon him and he rejects various sinewy trails in favor of an unqualified adherence to the highest path for Jesus' sake, he experiences joy that leaves him speechless. He's saying... And if you have been a Christian for any amount of time, when you have made the hard choice to go talk to that person, you know you really don't want to because it's going to be hard, but you do it anyway because you feel like that's what God wants you to do. When you sacrifice that time or you make that effort when you really don't feel like it, or when you're faced with the moral stand that you have to take in the workplace and say, I just really don't feel comfortable doing that. That in those moments, you find this joy that comes from a confidence that only comes with conviction that, that you are doing what God would have you to do in the little choices. When you choose to go to this school or that school, when you choose to quit that job because of what it requires of you, when you choose to trust the Lord, even though you're not sure how it's going to work out, but you know this is the path of obedience. D.A. Carson puts it this way in the contrast. He says, no one is more miserable than the Christian who for a time hedges in his obedience. He does not love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures, and he does not love Christ enough to relish holiness. He doesn't feel at home any longer in the world, but the memory of his past associations and the tantalizing lyrics of his old music Prevent him from singing with the saints. He's a man most to be pitied, and he cannot forever remain ambivalent. Our deepest joy springs from unreserved commitment, from selling out. And it doesn't necessarily mean you literally have to sell everything you have. It is this attitude, this orientation, this perspective that says nothing else is worth anything close to what God is offering me. You realize that maybe you know in this life there will be things that are enjoyable and they don't last. You, you think about smoking. So long a habit of so many, right? That it brings some pleasure, some relief, but eventually it's going to bring lung cancer and death. Coughs and illnesses and sickness. Uh, you know, excessive drinking can numb the pain for a season. Illicit drugs can give you an escape for a little while. They bring relief, perhaps, but ultimately they often bring poverty, broken relationships, and emptiness, and a worse state than you began in. The joy we long for and hope for in achievements and success and popularity and power, anything else, is going to leave us empty. 
like drinking salt water, will be thirstier at the end. Until and unless we commit to the kingdom. Until and unless we're willing to forsake everything else for Jesus. Because the kingdom is about lining up under a king. And your king is Jesus. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The king who came among us to live this perfect life. The king who came among us and entered into the life as a subject, obeying the Father, found joy in the garden of Gethsemane, in the upper room, speaking with his disciples, saying, look, I've come that you may have the fullness of joy that I have, that your joy may be full in me, right before he's headed to the cross experiencing the agony, not only of physical suffering on that cross, but the very wrath of God justly poured out on those who deserve eternal judgment. And he did that with joy. Entrusting himself to the judge who judges justly. And he rose victorious from the grave, paid the full penalty, and offers that same joy to you, that same power, this one who has broken not only the power of death, he's broken the power of sin, that you can be free from it. He's broken the power of shame and guilt, that you can have that set aside. He's broken the power of the evil one, that you can be free from his control. This one, this King Jesus, and he says, come into my kingdom, and all it requires of you is to give up everything, starting with your heart, to say, I trust you, Jesus, and I don't know where that's going to take me. And I feel like I'm going to miss out on some things. And I don't know how it's going to go. But I'm going to put my hopes in you. I'm going to trust you more than my bank account. More than anything else. I'm going to trust you more than my own knowledge and experience. I'm going to trust you in whatever questions I have. Whatever concerns about what I'm missing out on. I'm going to pursue the kingdom with the confidence that it's going to be worth it. You know, I, I received an offer, a credible offer, a legitimate offer to invest $100. Or actually, no, it's just dollar for dollar, but at least $100, so I went with $100. That if I put that in uh, a certain investment firm associated with the Dallas Mavericks, which I should have known. That was a bad idea. <laughs> Dallas basketball team. Uh, they had a deal, a partnership with an enterprise called Voyager where you could invest you know, a minimum of $100 in Bitcoin. This is about a year or so ago. You see where I'm going now? And they would give you $100. I thought, hey, how bad could it be, right? I put in $100, they give me $100, I just check it all out, right? And I was like, well, I'll see, it's only, you know, $100. They gave me the $100. Boom, I got $200. Woo, let's watch, let's watch Bitcoin. Wow, it's up to 210. It's up to 220. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's 120. My 200. Wait, wait, now it's 90. It's like, I didn't check this morning, but yesterday it was like $80. I put 100 in. They gave me 100. That $200 is now 80. 
You know, that's the kind of risk we're willing to take, right? I'm going to hold on to it until it gets back to 100. They're in bankruptcy. I don't know if I'll ever see my 100. But I thought, hey, who knows? You know, I feel like we have much more certainty about what God is talking about in his kingdom. You read the scriptures, and Jesus lived it. He experienced this joy. You can't read those passages and not say, you know what? He had something in the midst of trials and sufferings that can sustain me through whatever the world has to offer me. And it's way more certain than any investment. And it requires that obedience. It's not a burden, but brings this lasting joy. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we often have questions about what the future is going to be like, and we do wonder if it's worth it. But oh Lord, when when we trust you, maybe it's some of us for the first time today, we say, you know what, I'm I'm going to trust you, Jesus. I'm going to believe that you did die on that cross. I'm going to believe that that was for me and my sins. And I'm going to believe that you rose from the dead and that you offer your Holy Spirit to me right now. Lord, do that work. Bring that joy of forgiveness into those hearts. Lord, some of us, we've been walking with you for a long time and we forget. We get caught up in the busyness of life. We get caught up in the the pressures and pursuits pleasures of security, Lord, would you remind us again of those times when we made the little decision, when we wrestled with the implications of the choices and we chose for you, and the great confidence that gives us to face whatever those consequences are, that we might make better choices today and tomorrow and next week that we might walk with you by faith. Oh Lord, that we might find that joy. Whatever happens to us in the world and our circumstances, we might have that abiding joy, that well-being that can only be found sold out for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.